Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Media Podcast. I'm Ollie Mann. On today's show, it begins. A year of charter renewal debate on the future of the BBC. Welcome along. Uh, Plus, those weird local stories that fill airtime across the country are now all in one place. We talk to Local World about their new digital platform, Quirker. Also on the programme, the NME goes free. Is Chris Moyles set to return to Breakfast Radio? And we ask just how transparent is the application process for one of the big gigs at the Beeb. That's all coming up on this week's media podcast. And with me today at the Hospital Club is the uh, broadcasting consultant, Paul Robinson. Welcome back, Paul. Thank you. Good to be here. And also with us is Laura Mansfield. Now, Laura co-founded the TV company Outline Productions in 1999 and is also the chair of the Producers Trade Association, PACT. Uh, welcome to the show, Laura. Thank you for having me. Media podcast virgin. Yes. Busy times at PACT. This is well-timed, this appearance. This is well-timed and very, very busy times at PACT. So um, exciting times too. Okay, but before we get too bogged down in, in media regulation, which does happen on this show quite frequently, uh, give us give us some titillating showbiz stuff. What are the uh, productions you've been involved with uh, at Outline? Well, we work with the delightful chef who is Tom Kerridge. Oh yeah, he's We good. worked with uh, Tanya Byram, with Claudia Winkleman. We worked with you know a whole number of really brilliant stars over the years and um, at the moment are cooking up a range of exciting shows for the UK and for America. I'm appropriately titillated by that showbiz tidbit. Thank you. Uh, and now ready to talk about media regulation. The government launching their green paper on the BBC on Thursday, which is the day of recording. So this is hot, hot, hot off the press. John Whittingdale, the Culture Secretary, outlined the parameters of a debate today which is going to last until this time next year. Strap in. Uh, He confirmed the closure of the iPlayer loophole that allows people to watch on-demand content without a licence. He didn't commit to the inflation-linked deal that Tony Hall announced two weeks ago, uh, citing the scale of the BBC as a problem. And as we record tonight, there's lots of speculation that there's a threat of selling BBC Worldwide, the commercial arm of the BBC. Uh, Those are kind of the headlines. Uh, Then there's also this. One key task is to assess whether the idea of universality still holds water. With so much more choice in what to consume and how to consume it, we must at least question whether the BBC should try to be all things to all people, to serve everyone across every platform, or if it should have a more precisely targeted mission. Laura, with your packed hat on, first of all, what is your reaction to all of these uh, very much debated headlines? 
Well, I mean, with my packed hat on and also, you know, with my licence fee payer hat on, I mean, I think what we're about to enter into is a marathon, not a sprint. And, you know, I think it's really, really important to take on board that this is a consultation. And I think most of what I've read in certainly the executive summary and the kind of, you know, the, the beginnings of the Green Paper are that... John Whittingdale is opening a consultation here and that is what's an appropriate process for charter review, that he genuinely take on board the opinions of stakeholders, of members of the public, of licence fee payers. And difficult questions need to be asked. And But I think you know the tone and flavour of the Green Paper... Um, I thought was quite encouraging. You know, he's absolutely celebrating the importance and relevance of the BBC right in the very, very opening paragraphs of this document. So I sort of, you know, I don't think that anyone's going into this as some some sort of a war. I think what we need to all do is go into this very much as a consultation. Pact will absolutely be responding to this consultation. Um, We've already given evidence to the House of Lords earlier this week um, and we'll be continuing to consult on all of these different questions that have been raised. I mean, you say no one's going into it as a war, uh, but Paul, that kind of phraseology and terminology does come up repeatedly, doesn't it? Because there is a feeling uh, that the Conservatives in particular, and of course they're now the government, uh, didn't like the way the BBC behaved during the election, that the negotiation a couple of weeks ago was all done behind closed doors again, uh, and that therefore whatever happens now, you know, there are central figures in the government like George Osborne who just want the BBC to be smaller and this consultation's a fig leaf anyway. Well, I think the first thing is, I think it's good now we're talking about the scope of the BBC, what the BBC should do, what sort of programmes it should make, how it should be funded. That's the right debate to have, as Laura was saying. Um, All of the discussion just before the budget was, of course, about the licence fee, uh, about the BBC now having to take on the commitment to provide licences for people 75 plus, and, of course, the closing of the uh, loop on the iPlayer, which is completely right. There is clearly going to be more and more programming, including BBC programming, watched on demand rather than live or linear channels, and that should therefore be brought in. That's a a change in technology that clearly wasn't envisaged 10 years ago when the last charter was renewed. So that's all all good. Um, Clearly, there was a lot of um, discussion about the uh, decision about the funding. Um, The reality with the BBC is that the BBC does need to look at how it makes programmes. It needs to look at efficiency. It's still got far too many managers, far too many layers. And, you know, the only way you're going to force the BBC to do that is actually actually to take a bold move in the way Osborne did. So how they're going to achieve that saving, how they're going to fund it, that's another issue. But now we're back to the really important thing, which is what sort of BBC do we want? What do we want the BBC to do? What sort of scale? What sort of scope? And of course, the issue about funding, as you quite rightly said, he did not confirm in this green paper there'd necessarily be an RPI-linked licence fee. That's because you've got to first of all define what is the BBC going to do, and then you decide how you pay for it and what you you pay for. Um, I think it's also important to say that John Whittingdale is not anti the BBC. You know, he's someone I've talked to in the past about this, and he believes in the BBC. I think he believes in a strong BBC, a BBC that actually is an important part of the overall broadcasting ecology. But he was anti backroom deals, wasn't he? Said so publicly, and then and then was clearly a participant in one. A backroom deal is a deal that's actually been done confidentially, and I don't think you can do everything by consultation. The license fee settlement uh, and the the decision that George Osborne made, you couldn't possibly share that with a large number of people. Because you know what happened? That would leak out. It just would. I mean, the BBC is as poor as it comes. Not even all the cabinet were told about it. So, you know, if you're going to do something like that, you have to do it confidentially. That's not a backroom deal. That's just actually being sensible. Whittingdale is 
actually pro the BBC. And if they get this right and the BBC is properly structured in such a way it is truly doing something unique for the uh, UK, both domestically and overseas. And overseas is very important because the BBC is a really important moniker for this country outside the UK. That will secure the future of the BBC. And I I support that because I want a strong, creative BBC. And that's what I think this is about. Laura, do you agree with Paul that it wasn't a backroom deal what happened before the budget, that that was sort of the, the best way to go, at least the lesser of two evils, if it had leaked out? then it, you know, Imagine the terror of having a public consultation. I mean, I think a lot of people just would, would like to have had a say. Uh, yeah, I think they would, and I think that's why you know we saw a very strongly worded letter from Rona Fairhead, you know, coming hot, hot off the heels of that. I mean, there's pros and cons. I, I think the leak, whether it leaked out or not, is sort of slightly by the by. I don't think a leak is a, is, a, is a particularly significant or relevant thing. I think it feels slightly premature to have decided the amount of the settlement before having determined. Mm the scope and scale and obviously that's why last week there was wording around the fact that that was contingent and obviously you know the the impact of taking on board the costs for the over 75s is is going to be really significant and is going to materially affect what the BBC is going to be able to do and yes they may have mitigated it but it is going to be able to affect the range of their activities so I would have liked to have seen it come the other way round. There is comfort for the BBC of at least knowing something now, early enough in the process, to make their plans. There's pros and cons, really. Okay, but you're both kind of uh, welcoming the fact that there is a consultation now and actually saying no question should be off the table. There's nothing wrong with asking the questions now as part of this green paper. So what would, in a nutshell, very briefly, be your answers to those questions? Yeah, What do you think the BBC is for? What would you be doing, given the options? I mean, that's an enormous question. And, you know, there are, I think, something like 20 detailed different questions asked in the green paper, so I can't really possibly speak to all of them. What are Um, they doing Fundamentally, What what could they definitely well, I think I think I would I would actually sort of flip it around. I'm much more of a sort of positive glass half full kind of person. I think what you need to start with is what they're doing right. I mean, what they're generally doing right is being not only the beacon and the pillar of the entire public service broadcasting system in this country, but you know, shedding huge creative light on what the UK creative sector does globally. They're producing wonderful programmes in the main, which are well-made, well-produced, not only by in-house, but significantly now by independent producers. And there is a real sort of creative excellence. I think the problems that we've seen, and the timing is always very challenging, is, you know, there have been a lot of scandals in recent years, and I think there is a lack of transparency about some of the spend and some of the income. You know, for example, how the income flows in between between BBC Worldwide and BBC isn't made transparent. And I think we would like to see a lot more transparency. But, I mean, when you look at all the positives that the BBC brings, I mean, the positives far, far outweigh the negatives. But it's, it is important to be asking these questions. And I don't think any question should be off the table. We should be able to have a really robust debate and bring it on. OK, well, then in that case, Paul, you can be our glass half empty person. What are they doing wrong? No, because I actually agree with Laura. I think she's right. No, but we all right. know the BBC's no, good. Well, look, the, 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 B- the question has to be, you know, should, we, should it be shut down? Should it, no, parts no. of it be scaled away? OK, the BBC does many things right. It makes some fantastic programmes. Most of its programmes are, are good. Um, it is a great standard setter. You know, it's a standard setter of quality. It's also a trainer for the industry. And as Laura says, it's a beacon for the creative community overseas. They're all very good things. It should continue to do that. Should but you, you but pay for it if you don't watch it? What it does do badly, though, is it is inefficient. 
it wastes money. It hasn't really got a sense of appreciating the income it gets because it hasn't got to earn it. You know, when money just comes to you automatically, as it does via a licence fee, you don't quite spend it as tightly as you should. And the BBC can be more efficient. If it was a commercial organisation, it would be more efficient. It also makes things it shouldn't. And The Voice has been talked about a lot, but it's a great example. You know, there is no reason for the BBC to make The Voice. The Voice will be provided by the market, uh, and as is in every other country in the world. I mean, the BBC is the only public service broadcasters doing the voice so you know why you believe the bbc has to do the bbc has to do the voice in the uk is there's no logical argument and okay, there are well, many other hang on hang on and no, there are no, many Laura's other, there many other programs I can't hang on. I can't hang there are many other Paul, programs it makes wait. that are not public service and it should not be right. making them Laura was shaking her head so vehemently there, I thought it might fall off. I Laura, you, there is no argument for keeping the voice on the there, BBC. There are Discuss. so many arguments for <laughs> keeping the voice on the BBC. And first and foremost, in the three key values of the BBC, it's inform, educate, entertain. And that entertainment is every bit as important as the other values. And entertainment, not just as part of making beautiful factual programmes that are entertaining too and that bring people to difficult subjects by being entertaining, but entertainment for entertainment's sake is a really important thing and I cannot, cannot stress that enough. I also think when you actually look at the specifics of The Voice and the specifics of the BBC, number one, because the BBC creates really, really high quality and produces and and commissions high quality creative content. It sets a bar. It sets a bar that other broadcasters must compete with, and they do. And because the BBC shows programmes like Strictly Come Dancing, like The Voice, you get ITV coming at it with every gun in its arsenal and producing extraordinary entertainment like The X Factor, like Britain's Got Talent, our bar is higher than almost any other broadcaster on the planet. So that's that's part of it. Britain's Got Talent and The X Factor existed before The Voice. That's why people pick it out. But what I'm saying is... No, no, no. I'm just saying... It absolutely is. No, it's not stealing their idea because it wasn't their idea. It's a really well-produced programme that's a clever format. If you look at the talent that's on that show, these are really positive icons that represent British society, that are diverse, that speak to a broad range of audience who might not want to come to a program about hedgehogs or badgers but they do want to come to the voice the values expressed by that show are very positive you've got older people being represented younger people being represented and it's an hour of your life on a saturday night and why on earth not in the mix of what they do it's important if it was the only thing they did no 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 but in the mix of the range of output they have it's crucial that entertainment must be there and the idea that that, that pundits should tell the BBC not to commission one show or another show. You, you go down that road and we're going to end up with very, very, very niche, very dull programmes and a massively diminished BBC and therefore a massively diminished creative sector. No, it's not for pundits to say what the BBC commissioned. The BBC should actually have better judgment and decide what to commission <laughs> and not commission the voice. Let me ask you, Laura, is it right to spend tens of millions of pounds to John de Mol for a format called The Voice that basically is a copy of The X Factor with swiveling chairs? That's just one example. It's, it is, is right. It's millions, it's public, money, public money, tens of millions for a format that's a copycat format. They didn't pay him up front tens of millions they, of pounds for a format. They, you know, when you see these numbers quoted, they're quoted out of context. What we're talking about I know is spread what the deal over was, a number of years. It was over a three-year deal. 
And so when you start sort of taking the numbers like that, there are lots and lots of other it's examples. Multiple millions of pounds. Yes, it's multiple is it millions right to spend of pounds. License fee on a format which is a copycat format. I think so. Yeah. Okay. In- well, here's a, here's a okay. nicer way of putting that question: Is wouldn't it be better spending that twenty million on originating your own format like they did with Strictly? Yes. So it- from that point of view, is the voice a mistake? Uh, I wouldn't say that the voice is a mistake, and I would say in the mix, it's it's absolutely the right thing they should be doing. If what they only did was commission external formats and they didn't create anything new and they didn't stimulate any new production, I think that would be completely the wrong mix. But in a balance and in a balanced ecology, I think absolutely you want to have a little bit of everything. Okay, I think it's very clear which way your swivelly chairs are facing (laughs) respectively on that particular debate. Uh, Let's just talk briefly about the BBC Trust because that is now kind of... uh well, on the chopping block as well, people seem to be suggesting. What are the viable alternatives for it? Well, the problem with any BBC regulator, and when I was at the BBC, it was the Board of Governors, and the Board of Governors didn't really work either. I mean, like the BBC Trust, and, and this is the problem with Rona Fairhead, she's been captured by the BBC management. What you need, and it's in the BBC's interest, is a regulator that is truly arm's length and will truly judge the BBC appropriately on an objective basis. So there's different models being talked about. There's um, obviously the Ofcom is one. Uh, there's a new style uh, regulator. There's an independent body observing the BBC. I think it's very hard to know how to do this because you've got two things to judge. You've got to judge the content and then there's the regulatory side. And there's, there's two different halves to that regulation. I'm not sure Ofcom is the complete solution. It could be that part of the regulation might go to Ofcom. But of course, the BBC should be making content that is unique and not provided by the market. And Ofcom might not be the right people to judge that. So I think it's a very tough one, but it is critical to get it right. I do think, though, the trust have not uh, shone and almost certainly be replaced. What is important is that what replaces it is much better and truly holds the BBC to account. And of course, one of the things it must do is stop all this market creep. What the BBC does is actually starts creeping into the market, damaging the market, doing things the market does. And it needs to be held as a public service broadcaster producing high quality, distinctive programming. I mean, I think everyone listening understands from that very eloquent distinction what the distinction is. The public at whole, though, I think they would think, if they had an opinion on this at all, the obvious home for for the regulatory body would be Ofcom. It will be really interesting to see the range of views that are expressed in this particular aspect over the consultation. I think holding the BBC to account is is massively important. I mean, Ofcom have proved across the range of their activities that they are able to look at public value tests. They are able to look at the market. They are able to look at areas of market failure, you know, in their public service reviews. So I, I think that those are absolutely areas of their activity. You know, I don't see any reason why why they couldn't take on board, if not all of, potentially much of. Uh, what the BBC Trust does, uh, you know, I don't have a particularly strong view one way or the other. I think what is important is that there is clear governance, there is clear distinction. I mean, as with any sort of healthy, large organisation, you want to have an arm's length board. You know, in, in, a, in a PLC, you've got the ability for shareholders to come, you've got all of those kinds of regulatory structures. So you, we need to have some ability to have an objective view about what they're doing and for them to be held account. And it goes back to the point about transparency. Whatever the system, whoever effectively the sort of ultimate board are, there has to be a greater degree of transparency so that a license fee payers can see how their money's being spent and feel you know what for that 40p a day I'm paying I'm getting extraordinary value for money 
or not, but they need to have a way of making a judgment about that. And also so that other stakeholders in the market can have a view about, you know, are things being done fairly, respectfully, you know, sensibly. And I think this is going to be a really, really important part of what happens next. Okay, before we take a break, uh, let's take a look at some headlines from the local news. Baguette Wars. Tesco customers lose it after malted grain baguettes are dropped. Famous Lincoln Gnome Man collection sells for just £1,000. Batman saves baby trapped in hot car. Yes, where would we be without the local press and their reliable source of quirky news stories? Uh, Well, radio stations up and down the country would have nothing to fill their phone-ins with, I can tell you that for sure. Plus, tabloids would be half the size. Uh, Well, now, publisher Local World has launched a website looking to monetize these stories on a national level. Uh, It is called Quirker, and earlier this week I met up with Steve Anglesey, the brains behind it, and media podcast regular Matt Kelly to find out how the idea came about. I was sitting in a room leafing through local newspapers and the first thing that I saw was a guy who had built a replica of the stateroom of the Titanic in his shed. Uh, The next thing I saw was a Britain's angriest dwarf who's in Hull. So angry is he that every month he uh, goes into the council offices in Hull and, and he defecates on the floor. So, And then I turned to the next newspaper and there was a guy who was... He'd just bought a new surround sound system uh, for his house and he was watching The Fast and the Furious 6, I think it was, on the TV and he, was, uh, he said, guys, he was thinking, this is absolutely amazing. The quality of this sound is huge. And then he went into the kitchen to make a cup of tea and saw that a car had driven through the front wall of his house. Now, these were all in one day's newspapers and I kind of thought, well, there must be something to this. So maybe there's a way of aggregating our national content without doing a huge national news site. And from there, we evolved the idea of Quirker as a kind of a thing that would pump out content that we already owned photos that we already own, stories that we already own, but we would spin them for a younger and social audience. And what's quite clear from reading the brief of the agency that you helped design the website with is that this isn't a case of these stories from Hull would never have reached the national or international press without you. This is a case of actually these stories tended to end up on Sky News uh, or in the Telegraph. And of course, you didn't get any remuneration for that. You didn't get any ad sales for that. And this is a way of trying to own it when it goes national. Yeah, very much so. You know, uh, we were creating these stories at great expense with a lot of a lot of talented journalists in our regional newspapers, and then the the, the nationals were basically coming along and eating our lunch. And so uh, we uh, we want to we, obviously we want to be able to move people around our network of websites. We want to be able to retain people. We want to be able to extract more value from those stories that our fantastic journalists and editors create. And you know, maybe maybe eventually this will evolve into something a, a syndication model, a kind of a Barcroft thing where we can own these stories and then sell them. And how much rewriting of the stories is required? Because obviously when it's in a local paper, the main appeal of it, apart from that it's a quirky story, is that it's local. When it's on a national site, OK, people get a little thrill of reading about the town they grew up in, but actually you don't almost really don't care where it is. Yeah, so there's, there's a considerable amount of rewriting and we try and add in some more detail. And we, in many occasions we can go back to, uh, to our colleagues in, the, uh, in our regional titles and try and get more pictures and more information from them. But really, we you know there's a there's a way of writing news for a a, a tabloid 
audience, which many of our local papers are, or a mid-market tabloid, which many of those are, and that doesn't necessarily work for a the kind of social audience that we're aiming that at. So the intros are done in a different way. Our stuff is much more in the, the frame of viral uh, viral Nova, Upworthy, those kind of things than it is in something that is mirror online, mail online, etc, etc. Yeah, and Matt Kelly, we've talked on the media podcast before about how local journalists need to start thinking about a digital audience but the problem is if you're trying to emulate that sort of buzzfeedish type style it is very different to what the primary audience reading it in the paper wants is there a danger that local journalists now start writing in clickbait rather than what their primary audience wants well buzzfeed and the words clickbait always go hand in hand and i think it's deeply unfair i think buzzfeed is probably in well in my view is the best model of digital publishing in terms of how to be brilliant editorially online so i'm quite happy to take the buzzfeed model but Quirker isn't BuzzFeed and it's not trying to be. I think there's absolutely nothing wrong in writing journalism that should be is designed to be seen by as many people as possible. I think that's a really good motive in, in terms of journalism. I think where it becomes a problem is if people only write journalism that they think is designed to be clicked and shared and, and passed around virally. I think local media does have a responsibility in the community. I think if we lose that strata of media in our societies we lose something really important the challenge is how do we create a model where that less profitable activity is funded by the more profitable activity which is just as worthy you know I don't think there's anything bad about entertaining people as much as there is providing useful socially valuable information and what about the all the different digital websites and apps and everything else that belong to these heritage titles you know over the last decade you've been developing tech versions of all of these paper products have some of the digital resources now gone into this national idea and does that take some of the focus away from here's a report from a yorkshire courtroom if your question is is there a finite resource and do we prioritize what we do with that resource then obviously yes there is. But, but you see them each, working hand in hand, basically. They abso- I don't see it as two different things. I see it as part of one big converged piece. You know, I see Quirker as part as an extension of our local audience. I see the success of Quirker being completely dependent on the local journalists who are producing the content in the first place. All we're doing is just repurposing it slightly. And I think newspapers in particular are very, very brilliant at creating great content that is used once in one place. So now we're using great, great content twice. At, at very little extra cost. So I think that's a different way of thinking, using the digital opportunity to extend the value of our content. We work constantly with our local teams to make our, the digital experience for them and, and their readers a lot better. I think a great example of this is I was talking last year to a guy from Fairfax in Australia and New Zealand, and they had a very sort of moribund, old-style food and wine column that they'd been running for years and years. It didn't do anything online, and they've managed to parlay that into a huge separate food and wine website that rakes in you know, multi-millions of Australian dollars from sponsorship and from um, advertising, and it's been reborn in print too. So we think that there are much more th- many more things like that that we already generate that are beyond simply digital versions of our titles. Let's talk about that revenue thing then, because uh, your profits were up 12% last year, which is great, obviously, for a, lo- for a local journalism business. 
What do you see? Why, why is it particularly great for a local journalism business? Because you say I think that almost a lot of, condescendingly. Yeah, yeah, I do because I think <laughs> a, people, a lot of people listening to this would assume that it's a completely dying medium. It might be a prejudice, but It'd I think they completely wrong. Which I is think why it's, it's good the most news. Vigorous part of the of the whole medium strata, and I think the opportunity, as I said earlier, is coming towards local. You know, if you think of that, it's become a cliche now about local mobile social, but we are a third of that equation, and we have this great advantage in we have a geographical niche already defined for. Us. We don't have to reach for it. You know, the Bristol Post means something incredibly powerful to people who live in Bristol. Okay. That's a great starting point. Okay, so it's not great news. It's perfectly expected, and we all think local journalism is brilliant. But what I was going to say is, what is the metric of success for this new website? Is it about more money, uh, or is it about shareability? I mean, obviously it's both, but if you had to pick one or the other, are you measuring how many tweets you get, or are you measuring how much money it's going to make? Well, no, everything is a is a means to an end, and the end is is a profitable business, quite clearly. And Quirk has been designed to be profitable, to use that awful phrase, podo, profit on day one, but it's as, as close as you could get to that because the cost base is so extraordinarily low because we are merely re- recycling content that's already been created. So the audience is obviously a goal because we need an audience to make revenue, but it's very clearly a revenue-generating um, business and uh, I firmly believe that it will be a very profitable one before the end of the year. You know I saw a lot of the institutional learning that we did at Trinity Mirror when we launched things like Us Versus Them and Amped uh, which ultimately uh, no longer exists. But the institutional learning, the, the the way we were able to launch things quickly, the way we were la- able to optimise things for sharing, the way that we were able to attract audiences that we didn't previously attract with, with Mirror Online, which I was running and, and before that Matt had been running, th- those were really, really valuable things that we all learned at a senior level and they inform what we're doing here too. What, what's interesting is that it's it's not predictable. And it's not predictable what will go viral. But what is predictable is the categories of content that have a stronger chance of going viral than other categories. So Quirker has an analytics model built into it where we are analysing successful types of story based on the tagging of the content. And we're going to do more of those successful types of story and less of the ones that don't fly. And always, 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 we are constantly surprised by how ignorant we are as journalists. And that old gut instinct about this is a cracking story actually isn't. And, you know, we can sit there blaming the readers for not understanding that this is a great story as long as we like, or we can look at the data and give them more of what they want. Matt Kelly, Digital Director of Local World. Well, Paul and Laura are still with me, and time for some news in brief. Uh, The radio rumour mill, uh, I imagine that's the thing, is full of speculation about the return of Chris Moyles to the airwaves. Pop Bitch have hinted for a while now that he's about to join XFM, replacing John Holmes on breakfast. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, get 20, 20, get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. 
And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Uh, now, Paul, I'm being very careful with this as an employee of Global Radio not to say anything other than what is being reported everywhere. But it has been reported that the studios are being refurbished at the moment. Do you think Moyles is coming? Do you think there's going to be an on-air makeover? Yes, I think he is. And I think it's great news. I mean, Moyles has been off the air since 2012. So great to have him back. Um, Breakfast is his natural home. He's brilliant at it. And XFM is a brand. It's the one brand Global haven't really invested in so far. I mean, Heart classic lbc capital smooth you know they've they've worked on all of those xfm's been left a little bit in the background now whether it's renamed capital rocks or not that's where i might take a view that's not necessarily the right thing to do because capital is clearly a very mainstream brand and xfm was always a bit alternative and another choice to uh, compared to six music and had a different sort of attitude bigger playlist and a bit more uh, anarchic approach i think what's going to be very interesting indeed is whether moyles is allowed to talk as much i mean he is is a brilliant speech broadcaster. I mean, on Radio 1, he was playing, you know, four records an hour and getting amazing ratings. Now, whether Global will allow him to do that, I think it's going to be an interesting question. But I do hope he's back, and I share Greg James, his former colleague at Radio 1's enthusiasm. Moyles needs to be on the radio, and we need Moyles. Do you agree, Laura, that he does need to be on the radio? He was the great white hope, wasn't he, of someone that might be able to make it work doing a standalone app or might be able to create satellite radio in this country. Uh, and some observers have said, well, you know, he's just taking a breakfast show. It's in a way, uh, you know, a bit disappointing considering what he could have done in, in, in an inventory way. Well, I mean, I guess I probably would say two things is that, you know, firstly, I would be so delighted to have Chris Moore's back on the radio. And I think everyone would be. And I think radio is what millions and millions of people listen to. And radio is what they come to. Maybe he can do an app along the side and maybe this would be the perfect platform to launch something from. But I think it also shows us that we talk so much about, um, as it were, new media and whether that's Netflix taking over the world or this app or that app and the power of um, online. But actually, people still come to traditional media and they watch television in their legion hordes and they read newspapers and they listen to the radio and they do all these other things as well, but not instead. And I think Chris coming back might be recognising that, but no, I, I really hope it's true. I mean, if it is true, it's going to be a hit, isn't it? I mean, I think I can say that fairly impartially. This is going to get a big audience, isn't it? If he's allowed to speak, I think it definitely would be. (laughs) Because, you know, if it's just records played in a row, well, you know, it might be. But I think people would really welcome him back with open arms. He's been sorely missed and he creates competition in the mornings. And I think, yeah, we'd love to see him back. He's just a fantastic personality. When he was on Capital, he did have more freedom. You know, he did actually talk a lot. So I think that uh, uh, Richard Park and the guys at Global are smart enough to realise that's his act. Uh, and they'll let him have some freedom, I imagine. 
Yeah, it's funny because he was a commercial radio creature for a long time, wasn't he, before he was on the BBC? I yeah. remember listening to him on Chilton when I was 17. The station I was uh, programme director of many years ago, yeah, Chilton, Radio Air, Capital Radio, before Radio 1. So he's a commercial radio guy. He understands how that works. OK, another heritage brand now, the NME. Uh, they're going to go free in September. No rumour here. This has been confirmed. The magazine have dropped in sales from 75,000 a decade ago to just 15,000 in recent figures. Going free, though, means they're going to distribute 300,000 copies to universities and stations, plus uh, presumably warehouses and squats. Uh, Laura, is this a good move, the NME going free? I think it's probably the only move that they can make. I mean, 15,000 copies is absolutely minuscule. And they still, I think they still have a huge influence. And I think, you know, it's a brand that has huge resonance. But, you know, if you decline any further than that, you sort of cease being relevant. Whereas if they give it out free and they can probably attract a new audience who expect to get things for free nowadays, then, you know, I think they could build it back up again because it has got an incredibly powerful brand. And certainly that brand resonates with bands and with labels. But it needs to get more advertising and it needs to get more people, young people, thinking that it's relevant. Yeah, I mean, Paul, I was very anti-Time Out going free, as I ranted about on this show at the time, because I was a subscriber to Time Out and I recognised they were going to lose a lot of premium content that I was paying for. I'm not a reader of NME, but I am someone who values that brand, like you're saying. I'd feel embarrassed going to newsagent and buying NME, but I'd pick it up for free and see what the kids are into. I think this could actually be a success. I do too. I think the model's changed. The expectation now is that you get the publication free and the money's made via advertising. You know, look at Time Out, look at the London Evening Standard, look at other regional papers where they're distributed free. That's a model. I mean, clearly, if NME can get 300,000 copies out and therefore about a million readers, they can charge a lot more for the ads than they can with 15,000. That will secure their future and I agree with Laura I grew up with the NME I've got a personal affection for it it's always been a really important voice in music and I think we want that voice so if they can reinvent in the digital world using a new business model good luck to them I think it's a great move Will it actually appeal to what is traditionally their age group, though, if all of us are saying that we'd read it? It needs to find a new audience, as Laura said. I I agree with her. I mean, I hope it will find a new audience. I think they can. Why not? I mean, look, Glastonbury, where I've just been, and yes, it's full of middle-aged people, but also they are appealing to to new, 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 younger people who are coming for the different mix of bands. And I think the NME will do something similar. It's, It's about the bands that they have. It's about their presence at gigs. And it's about their sort of continued relevance to that new generation the 14 15 16 year olds are there any dangers that you're aware of though of going free of the advertising only model much more risk i mean a cover price is uh, you know number of copies sold times the cover price and that revenue is guaranteed advertising you've got to sell it every month you know you're continually chasing targets so it's about risk will advertisers buy into it and will it get the right sort of audience it's got to deliver an audience that actually is unique if it's just delivering people who can be bought elsewhere advertisers won't support it so it's got to deliver a unique voice and a unique audience and if it does it'd be fine that's the risk Okay, quick mention of the New York Times now, uh, but this is a London story as well, bizarrely. You may remember that it has beefed up its bureau in the capital recently to around 100 staff. Uh, Well, in an interview with the Press Gazette, the NYT's international president, Stephen Dunbar-Johnson, played down that increase. He said they're not looking to compete with local media, but to cover Europe for their readers. Uh, Paul, that's a completely different strategy explain that way uh, to what the Mail and the Guardian are doing, for example, over in the US trying to woo over a new American audience. 
do you think it's a lie though? <laughs> no, I, I don't. I, I think that uh, we should remember that um, you think about the sort of the structure of the world now. Uh, in a way, America is sort of off on a limb because you've got the Middle East coming up. There's massive investment there. China is stronger. So actually, London is actually now really in the middle of the world. And it's a great place to base yourself. I mean, London has got an even cooler image than it had 10 years ago. Uh, this country is very strong. It's seen as being a hub for Europe. Uh, it's a natural place to base your operation. So I think it's true. I think he's going to really try and build his international business that happens to be in London. And London is the centre of politics, of, of culture, of art, of business. It's a natural place to be. So I know I think he's telling the truth. And I think it's a very bold, but I think could well pay off. But he says just for a domestic audience, really, the people who already know what the New York Times is, and are engaged with it. Is that a bit blinkered, Laura? I mean, if you ran a big international brand like that, wouldn't you want to uh, make it international, truly international, by building your overseas HQ? Well, I mean, I, I have to say I agree with Paul. I think London is a really international city, and it, I think, you know, in every single sort of survey that comes up, it, is, it keeps coming up as the international city and the city of choice for multinational companies to base themselves in. We've also got fantastic journalists here um, with considerable training um, and, you know, really a pretty great education. So all around that makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah, I think you do see that the New York Times is expanding. I certainly am much more aware of it on social media and on online platforms than I used to be so I think they are probably are kind of building their presence but um, just as every other global media brand is really. Well the hunt is on for a new political editor at the BBC and in the meantime Hugh all we can do is wait uh, after Nick Robinson is moving to the Today programme on Radio 4 uh, replacing James Nocty uh, but there's been a bit of a stink over the whole recruitment process hasn't there with uh, complaints to the NUJ over so-called cappuccino interviews for the big gigs uh, there is actually a page for political editor on the BBC's careers website but it seems you can only get in if you have the link uh, Laura it's not particularly open or transparent this is it? It doesn't seem to be but you know I would slightly suspend my judgement because you rush in and then you find out that these things aren't necessarily as straightforward as first seems when you know reading further into the story there's quite a lot of positions that have been made redundant and therefore positions have been had to be offered internally that couldn't be offered externally etc I mean if it is the case that it's been a cappuccino set up then I think that would be a great shame I would hope it isn't I mean as an industry television has a pretty abysmal record in doing this across the board certainly not just the BBC I would say probably every broadcaster and probably most indies um, and it's something which culturally we've all got to change and everyone knows we do because we're not going to become more diverse we're not going to have better recruitment practices unless we follow what other industries do as absolutely standard and have proper straightforward transparent interview processes generally speaking I would say that probably the BBC is probably one of the better ones but as an industry we've all got to become much much better at HR recruitment I mean, when you were working your way up in telly, did you get any of those jobs through a formal application process? I didn't. I worked in TV for five, six years. Every single one of those was a cappuccino meeting of some description. I th I've, I've had a couple of jobs that have been formally advertised, but no, mostly it's been finding out on the grapevine that there was a job and banging off my CV. And I think 
most jobs don't get advertised and I think we need to kind of change as an industry to a place where most jobs are advertised or we will remain as people keep saying you know hideously white horrendously middle class and we will never attract all that brilliant talent that's out there but then is it a case maybe of commissioners not commissioning things at the very very last moment and saying right you've got to give this to me next Friday because that's what encourages people to go on Facebook and say right who's good I need someone good it's it's a problem that we've all got there is a deadline kind of structure to our industry and that's never going to really change it's it's last minute so we've got to find a way of working more transparently in a last minute culture because the last minuteness is never going to change no although of course you know we're having this discussion around the political editorship i'm sure that will be very well considered paul who would you give the job to who do you think is ripe to be the next nick robinson i can't think of an obvious candidate and i hope actually as laura says i hope they find someone interesting and they've dug deep and they've found someone who maybe we haven't thought of this job's always had personalities and i can remember back to john cole remember john cole the guy from ulster who had the most amazing delivery and it didn't get in the way and nick robinson too is also he's you know he's very clever with words you know he's very sort of uh, stylish in the way he presents the analysis I think it's a very important job so I hope there's someone who actually maybe does come from a different background who can bring a different perspective can still give very good reporting for the BBC um, and I hope maybe the cappuccino moments might have been a bit of um, additional recruiting that might have added to those who might otherwise not have applied if someone's been interviewed over a cappuccino and encouraged to apply who diverse it's more diversity to the uh, the candidates that's a good thing uh any favorite james nochty moments uh james nochty can't tell the time always gets the time <laughs> wrong always <laughs> i'm sure someone's done an audio boom of those we'll try and find a link uh, right before we go there is just time thank god for the media quiz this week the uh, quiz is entitled whose idea was that uh, i'm going to give you an announcement that's soon to be a reality and you tell me Whose idea was that? Uh, best of three, buzz in with your name. The winner gets Horseferry Road. The loser gets Isleworth. Question number one. A £200 fee for an interview on the beach. Whose idea was that? Uh, astonishing ignorance. Well, it was uh, Brighton and Hove City Council. That's whose idea it was. This was the story, did you see this, that they charged the Guardian £200 to conduct an audio interview on the beach. I'm going to book my Thameslink ticket and go down there tomorrow. It's a bit weird, isn't it? I don't know. Presumably, if we were doing a podcast there, that fee wouldn't apply to us. Then they backtracked on it, but theoretically, they were saying, yeah, if you're going to come and record something on the beach, we should charge you. And then the Guardian said, well, this is news content. It's not appropriate. I don't know. We get charged those kind of filming fees all the time. I don't see why newspapers shouldn't have to pay them. What's so great about them? (laughs) Well, they argued it was news aggregation rather than... Um, well, I think they got the money. I think they got the money back in the end. And now I remember the story. But um, there is often a distinction drawn between oh, we're newspapers, we can do it one way, and Telly has to do it all by the rules. Okay, two questions left. We're at nil nil. It's all to play for. Here is question number two: Strictly Come Dancing. Whose idea was that? Laura. Oh, Laura. It wasn't my idea at all. Well, if you ask me whose idea it was, there's clearly a whole team responsible, but there's been a big controversy going on about this. You know, the main thing is is that it was a huge team effort. Wayne Garvey has slammed um, uh, Fenia, hasn't he, saying she said it was uh, uh, my idea and all I got was chocolates and champagne. And Wayne Garvey says, no, 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 rubbish. 
Yes, that's right. Uh, Finia Vardanis was the uh, producer quoted in the Sunday Times saying it was her idea. Then Wayne Garvey wrote in and said that the lion's share should be given to Big Breath, <gasps> Richard Hopkins, Karen Smith, Amanda Wilson and Jane Lush. So it was a team effort. I, I just assumed more the whole thing more champagne. To, I assume the whole thing had come from Brucey's brain. Um, you know, uh, that's difficult because uh, you provided the, the initial answer, Laura, but uh, you did have the detail there, Paul. So I'm going to call that at one each, uh, which does make question three a very exciting moment. Here it is. BBC Local Radio will place more emphasis on personalities and less on news. Whose idea was that, Paul? This is uh, David Holdsworth, who has the glorious title of Controller England. Correct. Uh, He controls uh, BBC Local Radio, apart from in the national regions. And um, BBC Local Radio's been losing audience very badly in the last couple of years. And so he's now saying, we're going to do less news, we're going to actually have more uh, engagement, we're going to become more companionship. So he's told all his presenters, you've got to be more companionable, and you've got to relate to people, and we're going to do less news. And of course, the reason for this is, people don't know that BBC Local Radio doesn't sit in the BBC's radio division it sits in the bbc's news division and so of course it's driven by what stories it carries not whether it's a radio station serving people and david's saying you've now got to be more of a radio station and serve your community and its audience is old isn't it i mean you know the young side of the audience is 50 to 70 and of course they're going to spend longer listening to the radio it is going to be more of a companion than someone who's out working or someone who's listening on well, their mobile well phone. they're a very important audience because radio Didn't 2 radio 2 has gone uh, it's just the tone in your voice no, i just no, said no, you said I'm they're saying, old no i'm saying you, they we all get there sometimes uh, indeed, I, I'm a big fan of that the, seven o'clock. The, the point one is that radio, radio two has gone. Radio two has gone younger. So really, and commercial radio doesn't really serve that audience because there's no advertising market there. So BBC local radio is the the place for people who are 55 plus, and the core audience is 65, 70. So you know it's very important they're properly served. They're still license fee payers, you know, and they should get a service. You know what's going to happen, Laura? If they put too much extra content in, too much companionship, less news, they'll get more listeners. Then they might actually be more popular. Then we'll be back to the beginning of the podcast again. Shock horror. Yeah. Should these people be entertained? BBC services should <laughs> not be trying to actually give people entertainment. That's what I say. Uh, right. That means uh, that, Paul, you are the winner of the quiz. Congratulations. But I'll share the champagne and chocolates, which I'm sure will be coming shortly. That's oh, very gracious you. of you. Very gracious. And uh, otherwise, a fine debut from Laura Mansfield. Thank you, Laura. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Uh, we are taking a break for the next month, partly for the holidays, uh, but mostly for fundraising. If your company is interested in advertising to the wider media industry, then do get in touch with us. Uh, Similarly, if you would like to support the show just as a listener and you like the idea of having a future edition of the show dedicated to you, you can just go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Uh, That's what Gareth Close did. uh, And that's why today's show is dedicated to Gareth, uh, who is still drawing computer stuff on whiteboards for media companies. Uh, If you'd like to support the podcast in the future, then go to themediapodcast.com slash dedicate. Thank you very, very much. Uh, I've been Ollie Mann, the producer, Matt Hill, and the Media Podcast is a PPM production. Until we meet again, bye-bye. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.
When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.